You don't have to become a multimillionaire man. If you would be happy living on $70,000 a year, you can design a life where you have income streams coming in $70,000 a year and you're free. You're done, man. You don't have to strive to become a multimillionaire. Now, you can set up a $70,000 a year liberation. That's your lifestyle. Or a $700,000 a year liberation, if that's your lifestyle. You choose. The point is, don't let anybody else talk you into what it should be. And it doesn't have to be all that hard. Obviously, setting up a $70,000 a year lifestyle liberation is less involved than setting up a 700,000 or 7 million or 70 million, right? So the point is, get off of this idea of what success is and isn't. You decide what success is or isn't. You're listening to Ice Cream with Investors, a podcast that is dedicated to teaching you how to better invest your money so that you can live a more intentional life. I'm your host, Matt Four, and it is my goal to teach and empower you to remove the roadblocks to your financial success. All right, John, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Matt. My pleasure to be here. Absolutely. Well, we like to start with the difficult questions here. What's your favorite ice cream? Oh, man, I got to tell you, through law school, I never pondered a question. (laughs) (laughs) I've been thinking about this for days, man. I'm not kidding Mm -hmm, you mm -hmm. because there's so many nuances. So I'm going to spend the next 40 minutes. (laughs) (laughs) All right. I have a few answers for you. If I want something more subtle, more elegant, I like a nice pistachio ice cream. Now, if I want to, normally I'll go something with fudge and goo, a turtle, moose tracks, something like that. So it really depends on the mood. The most interesting ice cream I ever had, I was traveling through uh, the state of California, the Inland Empire, a lot of agriculture. I happened to be in an area, so I found out, where they produced a lot of garlic. And we pulled over in this truck stop, whatever it was, and I saw this case of cups of garlic ice cream. And I just laughed out loud to myself and spoke out loud, garlic ice cream. And the guy's standing there, and he said, do you like garlic? I said, yeah, I like garlic, but come on. He said, tell you what, you buy one, you don't like it, I'll give you your money back. So how could I not take him up on that? It was one of the best ice creams I ever had in my life, man, garlic ice cream. So so there are my answers. That, that, is the, that is the most unique answer we've had so far. And my mother always says that every good meal starts with garlic. It sounds like every good meal can end with garlic ice cream. I'm telling you, man, you'd never think it. You have to like the flavor of garlic. But if you do, it was yummy. I love it. I love it. Well, tell our listeners, what's the scoop? What do you do today? Today, I own a residential property management company in Sarasota, Florida. I've been in the real estate business for 33 years, I think, primarily in brokerage most of that time, but for the last since 2012, so 11 years. I've had this residential property management company, which, by the way, I'm phasing out of. By the end of 2023, I plan to be out of that, and we'll figure out what I'll do with the rest of my life. Are you selling the business, or how are you phasing out there? Well, it's interesting. I'm actually selling. I've been, for the last year and a half, 
selling off the properties on behalf of my owners. I'm a broker also because I could get a lot more in commissions. I thought about this. The return on selling the properties and getting the commissions is much higher than I could get selling the doors. So Wow. That's actually a super interesting exit strategy. You're not going to sell the business. You're going to sell the assets inside the business that you technically don't own. I own a franchise. So there's some reasoning there is why I thought that might be a better way for me to go. I'll probably sell the remaining small core, but we'll have reaped the greatest return from the few dozens of sales that I've had over the last two years out of my uh, landlord pool. You've got a pretty diverse background that we're going to get into, but how did you get involved in the property management business? I know you're down there in Sarasota. You've spent some time in Buffalo and then Austin and Chicago. How did you end up in Sarasota managing properties? Okay. So that's a very good question. And I think that there's a lesson to be learned. So I um, graduated law school um, in Northwestern Chicago, had been in the real estate business prior to law school, didn't go to law school because I wanted a job as a lawyer. I wanted to learn the law, went back into the real estate business, started a brokerage called Chicago Building Exchange. I analyzed the market thoroughly and everybody's running around selling condos. That's what you got in a big city, right? Not houses. Everyone's selling condos. I could have been just another condo guy. The big guys are selling the skyscrapers. So what's that sweet spot in the middle? And I saw that there was no one concentrating on smaller buildings. We call them flats in Chicago, four flats, six flats, 10 flats. You'll have a building with three storefronts on the bottom and 15 apartments upstairs. There was no one that dominated that market. So I called myself Chicago Building Exchange. Why list your small building with a condo guy when you could do it with the small building experts, Chicago Building Exchange? And that's what I was doing up until the crash in 08. Crash of 08 comes, business goes away. Now, at that time, I was highly leveraged my in my own investments, lost everything, foreclosures. I got pummeled. I had $1,000 in my pocket and I moved to Sarasota because I had family in Sarasota. I literally went broke after making a few hundred thousand dollars a year for a while, moved in with my mom. I'm in my 40s, living in her third bedroom. I get to work, flipping short sales. I start because what else is there to do? I start flipping short sales in Sarasota. A year I spend in that third bedroom with my mom as a 40-year-old man, how ego-busting that was. But I clawed myself back, made about 140 grand that year, got my own place, had some money in my pocket, and thought, okay, John, what are you going to do? This short sale business, foreclosure business, isn't going to last forever. It was actually starting to wane a bit. Already, I could see the writing on the wall. The way I was doing it with simultaneous closings, I was actually purchasing properties, closing on them five minutes later, selling them off to someone else, keeping the spread. In addition to negotiating short sales on the regular like brokerage short sale stuff for uh, third parties, that's what I was doing. I said, okay, this isn't going to last forever. Plus, I had developed a vehement hatred of the banksters. I just, to me, the banking, the lending industry, as far as the real estate business goes, was just another co-professional. But I realized there's some 
evil, greedy, dark, nefarious things going on in that business, at least at that time, that just put a horrible taste in my mouth. I had to get out of it. So what do you do? You think, you observe what's going on. All right, we've got all these houses down here in in Florida. They were everywhere, man. Grass two feet high, abandoned houses everywhere, boards, people stealing uh, AC units. It was everywhere down here. So I said, okay, these houses aren't going to get bulldozed and nobody's going to be able to be buying them for a while. I'm talking about the people that have been moved out due to foreclosure. They're not all going to go live under the bridges. Rentals are going to be the thing for the next few years. So although through Chicago Building Exchange, I had worked with tenants because I was selling multi-unit properties and due diligence and having looked at rent rolls and all of that stuff, I still wasn't a property manager. So I said, okay, I probably need to partner with someone. So I bought a franchise, a real property management franchise, figured I have a backstop as I get going in this. So that's how I got into the property management business, because I thought it's going to be a good business for the next few years. And I was right. And just like it was a business of opportunity, given the times, I don't need to be in the property management business anymore. It wasn't my heart's passion. It was just something I thought that would be good to do. So like I said, this year, I plan on phasing out of it completely. What was that experience like? One of my property managers here in the Nashville, a real property management franchisee as well. And Mm -hmm. he by far is the best property manager I have ever run across in my life. And anybody investing in the Nashville area, I'll make sure to pass along his contact information just because he's so good. But talk us through that process, because I don't think I've talked to anybody about like, what does that process look like? Why did the terms what and process? all process Of buying the uh, franchise? Well, I mean, that's pretty simple. You read the contract, decide if it's onerous to you or not. Basically, they get a cut out of your monthly revenue stream. They have right to look at your book so they can see what the actual numbers are. And then you have support. So the benefit to me, let's back up. Knowing what I know now, I would not need a franchise. I could go start a property management company, a white label on my own, but I didn't know that then. So the benefit to me was the marketing. I basically let them know that we have a new property and it gets put into the system. It gets blasted out everywhere. And then the negotiation of special deals on various things, our app folio software, it's cheaper for us than it is for anyone else. There's a lot of back-end tools and lockboxes and insurance and all of that stuff that if I were on my own paying the normal price of an off-the-street property manager, it would be more expensive. So I get discounts because of the bulk buying power, so to speak, of being associated with them. And I also have, if I need to make a phone call and find out about something, I can. And they run the websites and keep that going and all of that good stuff. And as far as speaking with the uh, owners about it, what's the benefit to you? property owner, what do you care if I'm a franchise or not? I said, really, the only things that matter to you that would be important to me if I were in your situation evaluating property management companies is that there's a third, a Fortune 500 company sits back here and looks at those books every month and makes sure the bank accounts are reconciled. So not that saying you're property manager who is, isn't affiliated with a national franchise is going to be doing anything nefarious. It should be comforting to an owner to know that there is someone uh, looking over the shoulder, so to speak, making sure everything is uh, straight. And then yeah. again, that marketing, 
reach and heft that we have through the deals property management has. That's important from the property owner standpoint, I think. Got it. Got it. Last question I'll ask you about the property management business is I have had a couple conversations with property managers on the podcast, but I don't think I've ever asked the question, what was the hardest part about running and scaling a property management company? Very, very easy question. Finding vendors that would show up to do good work. Which plain and simple, man. My solution was serendipitous. I was in it six months and I'm like, whoa. I can't find a good plumber. I can't find good handyman. I can't find good electricians. People don't show up. They do shoddy work. I'm like, really, all a property manager is, is a bookkeeper and a middleman, right? We're subcontracting out all the work. We're the liaison. We're making sure everything gets done, putting the work with the vendor and then paying the bills and making the statements, collecting the rent. It's really what we are, is we're liaisons. We're we're orchestra conductors. If you don't have good members orchestra, you're screwed, man. You've got to have a team. It's the team sport property management. So I was sitting at a Starbucks and somebody mentioned BNI. Are you familiar with BNI? I'm not. It's an no. organization called Business Networking International. BNI. They're global. The model of BNI, it's a membership. So you pay your dues. And the model is you've got professionals, one allowed from any given field. So in a typical BNI organization chapter, and there could be 10 chapters in a community, depending on how big the community is. You'll have one residential property manager, one residential real estate salesperson, one commercial salesperson, one insurance guy one real estate attorney, one litigation attorney. So you have one plumber, one electrician. So I got into a BNI group because you have a weekly meeting, you go have breakfast, and every week I sat down with my electrician. And every week I sat, and the idea is everybody's getting leads for everyone else. So when you're in that BNI group, your job is to find leads for your plumber and your electrician and your flower shop lady and your coffee shop guy. And they're doing that for you. I could care less about the leads that I would get for people wanting to rent out their property. My goal was to just find a plumber that would show up and an electrician that would show up and a handyman that would show up. So I found that was an excellent means of securing. I haven't been a member of BNI in, I don't know, six years, maybe more, but that's yeah. my plumber. You know, all of my lawn guys, all of those people came from BNI because there's accountability there. So that was a very long answer to the most yep. difficult part of uh, getting going in a property management company. Yeah. And I think if you're out there listening and you own property that you're managing yourself and you're thinking, why do I pay a property manager? It's for exactly that. You just bought a whole Rolodex of contact information and people that will show up to do the work. And the past couple of years, that's been difficult to show up to do good work has been the history of hiring out contractors. So I appreciate that insight there. I want to shift this now into your book. So you wrote a book, Strategic Planning and Investing for Individuals. I was thumbing through it, doing some research, and it's kind of the book I wish I would have written because it talks through a number of different things, tax strategies, estate planning, investment vehicles, and things like that. So I want to take this conversation in two parts. First, let's talk on the investment summary. So you've obviously been involved in real estate and investing for a very long time. 
but you also offer some different opportunities for people to invest as well, investment vehicles as well in the book. Talk us through what is an investment in John's eyes? Mm, Okay. To me, an investment is an economic machine. If it doesn't spit out cash flow, it's not an investment. This isn't textbook. This is my definition. So putting money into whatever and hope and getting no return in the hope that 10 years from now, it will be worth more. To me, that's not an investment. A business that you put a capital investment, you work it either yourself or have other people working it for you, doesn't matter, but you put in capital, that capital Two things have to happen. It doesn't get wasted and it doesn't shrink. In other words, it's security of capital and that capital is working to spit off cash flow. Cash flow comes out of this little economic machine. Now, what do you do with this cash flow that comes out the other side? You could put it back into this machine. So this machine can create even more cash flow that you could put back into this machine and keep going that way. Or you can take it and create another machine and get that one going. And you can take it and put it into another machine. So you could have one or two or five big machines or 15 little machines. I tell people, why don't you try this? Instead of going for huge investments, try taking out your car payment. Find an investment that's going to take out your car payment. You're not going to get rich off this investment, but your car is going to be paid for the rest of your life. Go find another investment that's going to take out your family's cell phone bills. Go take out another investment that's going to take out your house payment. If you keep taking out payments like that, one day you're going to find, my gosh, I don't have to work. All my necessities are taken care of, not through hitting home runs. Everyone wants a home run. No, singles, doubles, man. Triples are nice too, but singles, doubles, singles, doubles, singles, doubles. Small little cash machines spitting out income. I'm so happy to hear you say, one, an investment is something that spits off cash flow. I am a personal believer that if you're investing in something, it should automatically produce cash flow. If it doesn't, you're speculating. And if you're speculating, you might as well go to Vegas and at least get some free drinks from it. Or buy Bitcoin. Um, or buy Bitcoin. Uh, and the, the second thing I'm glad you said was this idea of like, you don't have to go hit home runs. I talked to some friends that were, I'm trying to get them involved in investing and, and showed them the light. And one of the investments I showed them is like, hey, you receive $200 a month of cash flow off of this. And they're like, well, that doesn't make me excited because my bills are X or my income is Y, et cetera. And I'm like, yes, but that is your car payment. That is your gas payment. That is a cell phone bill. And all of a sudden, when you start knocking down bills with your investments, you live an abundant and free life. So I'm so happy that you mentioned the singles versus home runs. Let me read, since we're on the same uh, wavelength there, the subtitle of the book. So the title is Strategic Planning and Investing for Individuals. The subtitle is Asset Protection, Diversification, and Passive Investing for Cash Flow and Lifestyle Liberation. That's what it's all about, man. Cash flow and lifestyle liberation. And let's talk about something else with respect to that. I don't get to determine what your lifestyle should be or needs to be. Point being, you don't have to become a multimillionaire, man. If you would be happy living on $70,000 a year, you can design a life where you have income streams coming in 
$70,000 a year and you're free. You're done, man. You don't have to strive to become a multimillionaire. Now, you can set up a $70,000 a year liberation. That's your lifestyle. Or a $700,000 a year liberation, if that's your lifestyle. You choose. The point is, don't let anybody else talk you into what it should be. And it doesn't have to be all that hard. Obviously, setting up a $70,000 a year lifestyle liberation is less involved than setting up a 700,000 or 7 million or 70 million, right? So the point is, get off of this idea of what success is and isn't. You decide what success is or isn't. And I promise you, it can be much easier than you think. But who is talking like this, Matt? Who is talking like this? The HR lady who's telling you to put all your money into the 401k? Is she telling you this, man? So I guess now comes the conversation of different asset type vehicles, right? So both of us are real estate people. So I think we can all assume that we prefer real estate or we have a bias towards real estate. But I've heard you talk about this idea of hard assets versus derivatives. And maybe you could just level set what is a derivative and then how does that differ from a hard asset? So a derivative, if you look, think of the word derivative, derive, it derives its value from something else. It does not have any value. It derives its value from something else. So if I own a bushel of corn, the value is in the corn itself. I can eat that corn. I could sell that corn. I could plant that corn. The value is in the bushel of corn. I could also buy a futures contract for corn. Do I own any corn? No, I don't own any corn. What I have is a bet on the future price going either up or down, do it with options too, right? It's a bet on a future value. It has nothing to do with, with corn per se. It's just, that's the marker that we're counting up against. People buy into, here, let's talk about gold. Gold, you can hold it in your hand, right? It's a commodity. It's a real thing. It's a physical asset. You could go buy a gold index fund. You don't own any gold, man. It's a derivative, right? You're just making money, yes or no, depending on the price of gold. But call them up and say, hey, man, send me my gold. They'll say, what are you talking about? This is an index fund. There is no gold here. So the difference between a commodity and a derivative is something that has intrinsic value in and of itself and something that derives its value from something else. And not every asset is... I know many people that think they're investors, but really they are speculators. Investors invest in assets. If you're investing in derivatives and speculations, you're making bets on the future price. There's no real value there. There's a lot of smoke and mirrors going on. Make sense? Bank accounts, just so you know, you don't own the money in your bank account. That money belongs to the bank. Do you hear what I said? It belongs to the bank. It's an asset on their books. It's not a liability on their books, which is what it would be if you owned that money. All you do has a, you have a claim against the bank's general asset pool. 
that may or may not be paid back, and probably it will be. I'm not saying, well, but the point is, many people think things are assets. They are not. Yeah. And I'm glad you went into this idea of uh, derivatives and what you own, because one of the things that I was going through this process of developing a framework to help people understand an investment. And one of those is what is your ownership stake in it? And you might own a share of Apple. Well, you do technically own a piece of that company, but it's such a small piece that do you really even have a meaningful say in it? Versus if I go and buy a single family home, okay, I own that property. And so this idea of what is your level of ownership and where you sit in the preference stack of that ownership really matters in terms of your financial returns on that investment. A share of stock is is very similar to the bank account analogy mm-hmm. I just used. You own an undivided claim against Apple Corporation, but you don't own anything in Apple Corporation. It's just a claim that you have against the company. This is much different today in reality than when the idea of a stock corporation came about hundreds of years ago. Think of the difference between someone who buys into a syndication as a limited partner. They're actually a partner. You're not a partner with Apple, man. Apple doesn't care about you. Pick up the phone and say, I want to talk to Mr. Apple. (laughs) Get out of here. You're a limited partner in a syndication. Sure, you're limited means you're not operational, right? You sit back and let the pros do their thing, but you're their partner. They will talk to you. You'll have someone to call. There's accountability there. What happens if Apple goes bust? Oopsie. Yeah. Oopsie. That's what happens. Oopsie. There's a lot of people that are going to sit in front of you in that capital stack. That's for sure. Another part of your book is really estate planning. And since you are a non-practicing attorney, I'm assuming non-practicing there, but since you do have a JD behind your name, I do want to talk through estate planning because it is something that is very, very critical along the journey of financial independence that I'm starting to really understand the importance of. Specifically, if I pass tomorrow, the names on a bank account are the people that get the access to that money, regardless of the will that supersedes and some of these small intricacies like that. So what is it about estate planning that most individuals don't know and you think should know? I think it's probably, why is it, first of all, an investing book? Investing to me is about designing your finances around your lifestyle. So it's an integration of many different things. Estate planning is real simple. What happens to my stuff when I pass or become incapacitated? Who controls my stuff when I pass or become incapacitated? What about this? Who takes care of my kids when I pass or become incapacitated. So we talk about investing. Why? Because we want to secure life. We're not investing because we want to accumulate pieces of paper with green ink. We want to secure life. So estate planning is about securing the stuff that you've built and making it sure it goes to the parties that you want it to go to, that it doesn't go to the parties that you don't want it to go to, that if there are parties that you want it to go to, but maybe they're not ready for it, that it's structured in such a way that it is doled out or there are approvals needed to protect them from themselves. Do you want a judge deciding all this stuff? Probably not. Probably not. So it's really simple. 
what happens to my stuff when I die or become incapacitated? And speaking of incapacitation, what happens to me? Who takes care of me? Does the judge decide where I go and how I get taken care of? Or do I decide that upfront in consultation with my family? And really, assuming you're not a single person, a lone wolf in the world, this is something that's done in conjunction with the entire family. It's something that's discussed. And it's not a morbid thing about death. It's about securing our family so it doesn't fall apart and it isn't left to the whims of a judge that we get to decide. Do you have a couple questions that somebody that's new to this process can start asking themselves so they can work through and have an intelligent conversation with an estate planner? Not particularly, and here's why. The estate planning process, when it begins, so you find yourself an estate planning attorney. By the way, you're going to see an ad, $500 estate plan. Don't hire that person, please. Realistically, a good real attorney that this is what they do, estate planning. Not a generalist that, sure, I'll put together an estate plan, 700 bucks. No, 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 no. $3,500 to $5,000 is probably what a good estate plan is going to cost you. And the first thing is 100 questions they're going to ask you. They're going to ask you all about what your assets are. They're going to ask you about your health. They're going to ask you about your family members. They're going to ask you. You don't know what to ask them. They know what they need to know to ask you. And based on the answers that they receive, they'll be able to structure your estate plan accordingly. They'll ask those, okay, so I've got uh, two daughters and three sons. Then they'll start asking you, tell me about this daughter. How, what do you want them to get? Are there any issues right? Maybe I know people that their son had a drug problem and they wanted them to be taken care of, but they didn't want to get their they hands didn't want to on yeah, yeah, they didn't want to. So they'll start at once each question leads down its own trail and a competent estate planning attorney isn't going to give you some boilerplate piece of paperwork. They're going to ask you all the appropriate questions to come up with the document that uh, suits you and your situation. Now, remember, estate plans change, right? So you, they should be reviewed every five years or so in general, right? Relationships, um, new relationships are formed, old relationships die away, new assets come into the picture, old assets go out of the picture, new healthcare situations come in. So these things need to be reviewed. They're living documents, so to speak, and they're certainly not boilerplate documents, which is why you really should only go to an estate planning attorney that that is what they do, estate planning. And finally, estate planning is state law. So you need to go to an estate planning attorney. If you're in Wisconsin, find the best estate planning attorney in Wisconsin because Wisconsin laws are not Florida laws, are not Illinois laws. Yeah, that's a good piece of advice there. I mean, it seems obvious after you said it, but I actually didn't know that they were state run. So yeah, yeah. Well, this is a fantastic conversation, but I want to switch us now into our last round. We're calling this the five toppings. Our first one is, what is your favorite book or what is a book that you've read recently that's given you a paradigm shift? Wow. I read about 30 books a year. So favorite book is like the hardest question in the world. For me, I have to say the Christian Bible and the Jewish Torah, other two, two 
prime books for me, but that's not what we're talking about here. Um, formative books would be Ayn Rand's Atlas Shrugged, would be Ludwig von Mises's Human Action Formed My Economic Thinking, Atlas Shrugged Formed My Social Worldview Thinking as a Young Man. So those two books for sure. But uh, recently, John F. Kennedy Jr.'s book on the COVID epidemic was really um, eye-opening. Again, this is really hard for me because I read so much. Yeah, I, I'm actually surprised up until this point, we've never had someone say Atlas Shrugged. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, that's yeah. killer work right there, man. Yeah. It's about that. So yeah. is human action, by the way. I pick winners, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Our second one is, I believe that the person you become 10 years from now is directly correlated to the habits that you have and the things you do every day. What are some of the habits that you have? First thing I do every day is my quiet time. So I'll um, do some reading, do some praying, do some thinking, do some planning. It's my time. My back porch overlook a state park. So in the mornings, I'm out with my coffee and my Bible and whatever books I'm reading and a pad and I'm watching the bald eagle fly by. And just that's how I start my day. Generally, I'll do some stretching. After that, I'm old. I have arthritis. So I'll get my bones moving a little bit and then I start my day. But that's how I start every day. I got, oh, I don't have it on right now. I have a Fitbit and we started the wife and I making sure we get our 10,000 steps a day. I love it. We've only had it a couple of months. <laughs> yeah, I'm actually about to go for a long walk after this. So you oh, reminded nice. me to get my steps in. Our third one is, what is the best piece of advice you've ever received? Think for yourself. Think for yourself. There's so much nonsense. If you're getting your news from the TV, from MSNBC and, Mo and Fox News, and they're yeah. opposite agendas, but they're all agendas, man. They're all agendas. They're all people trying to guide you into actions that will serve them best. Design your own life. And the only way you can do that is to think for yourself. This is going to sound very harsh, but if it's coming out of a politician's mouth, I automatically don't believe it. <laughs> no matter who it is, I don't care who it is, right? Think for yourself. If they're saying that the housing market, it, oh, inflation, it's transitory. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I didn't buy that for a second, but you know how many gurus started saying, oh, it's transitory. If you pay attention to what's going on, if you're looking at Fed data, if you're listening to Eurodollar University, if you're not listening to that podcast, you need to Eurodollar University. If you're not listening to Daniela Cambone of videos, if you're not seeking out your own truths, then you're going to you're going to find that your life is controlled by the whims of power structures that don't give a rat's patootie about you and your family. I heard Tim Ferriss say on a podcast in 2015 that he stopped watching cable news and it's probably the best thing I've ever implemented. In my oh, life yeah. Then. Think our, for yourself. Yep. I'm not done with that. Thinking for yourself means hanging out with people that have something to say. If you're following Matt, you're already doing this. But find... 10 or 15 or 20 mats, people that you know that they know what they're doing, that they're trustworthy, honest people, 
and follow them. And then you will find that they will tell you who they're listening to. And then you'll listen to them. And then they'll tell you what conference that they just went to. And then you might go to that conference. And when you go to that conference, you might meet somebody sitting next to you. And you will find that there's a world of knowledge that you're not going to get on MSNBC and Fox News, man. You're just not. Yep. We like to watch blood sports and our blood sports and our gladiators of the time is commentators just yelling at each other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't care who's I don't care who got 50 million dollars from the enemy. Oh, but that's OK. Yeah. Ah, you're just making it up. Our fourth one is what are you most proud of in your life? I'm proud that I grew up a sh- upstanding citizen, so to speak. I'm not a perfect man. But my parents divorced when I was two. I was the kid with the keychain in New York City on the subway at six years old, literally. I could have become a different person. So just the fact that I kept it on the straight and narrow and uh, sought my education, worked very hard, I guess I'm proud of just being a decent human being, not a perfect human being, but a decent human being. That's a lot to that's a lot. There's a lot. Of, Honestly, it's really hard. You know, it's really hard sometimes. Yeah. Making yeah. the right decision, even though it's the hard decision, is probably one of the hardest things to do in life. Yeah. And you can't, you got to get it because the world wants to teach you that the almighty dollar is the highest attainment. If you get the bucks, that's what success is. But look at all, you know, the Goldman Sachs traders that just got caught a few months ago for fixing the gold market. And think about what was happening in 08, the liar loans. And I mean, there's just so much filth and greed and lies and deceit in the business world. And just keeping it on the straight and narrow and saying, no, I don't need that money right there. It's not worth my soul. Yep. Yep. Our last one is, if you could sit down and eat a bowl of ice cream with anyone, dead or alive, who would it be and why? For me, it would be Jesus Christ. That would be why. No need for explanation there. But if we're going to take it out of that realm, it would be Elon Musk. The guy just fascinates me. I mean, think about this guy. Rocket ships that land like the old sci-fi movies, a pencil landing on its tip. And oh, by the way, we're going to do electric vehicles. And oh, we're going to put on Mars. And oh, by the way, we're going to have a tunnel operation. Oh, and for fun, I'll make a flamethrower. And the guy is funny and he has fun and Twitter pisses him off. So I'm going to buy it and fire everybody and do it right. I mean, Looking at a guy like him makes me realize what a schmuck I am. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> honestly, the most named people, Jesus and Elon, two most named people. Oh, really? Show. Really? Yeah. I listened to two in preparation for this audience. We didn't know each other. So I listened to a couple. I didn't I didn't hear those. Okay. But yeah. yeah. Well, John, fantastic conversation. If our listeners wanted to reach out to you or uh, get a copy of your book, where's the best place we could point them? Oh, okay. So I have a website, wealthloop.com. Put the two words together, wealth and loop, L-O-O-P, L-O-O-P.com, wealthloop.com. You can get the book on Amazon. You can get the book at Barnes and Noble, all those places. If you go on my website, you'll get, you'll see the shop. 
tab. You'll get it for 10% off. You'll get free shipping and you will get it signed. You'll get a signed copy. So you can get it at my website. You can get it in any of the normal places you'll buy any books. Just so you know, I checked the stats this morning. I had one sale in Slovenia over the last week and one sale in Moldova. Yeah. Don't know why, (laughs) but it's gone international, man. Actually, I sold a hundred copies in France. Why? I don't know. International bestseller over here. International bestseller. Yeah. Well, we will leave those links in the show notes. And then John, thanks for coming on. Thank you, sir. It was a great pleasure. Everybody out there, design your lifestyle. Think for yourself. Keep listening to Matt and people like Matt and you'll do all right. Thank you for listening to Ice Cream with Investors. If you like what we serve you here, it would mean the world to me if you would like, subscribe, and leave a review on your favorite podcast app.